whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, don't miss this. This passage is life-giving. In fact, if you parked on this side of the church and walked in, we have a huge banner with verse 16 listed on there. This is a core passage to where we're going as a church here at Calvary. The idea of being better together, much of it is rooted here in Ephesians chapter 4. The first six verses, we actually went over last week. If you were here, they, they may sound familiar. Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote the book of Ephesians. It's where modern-day Turkey is today, those that lived in Ephesus. He wrote to the first generation of Christians. You have to understand, there had never been a generation of followers of Jesus. This was the very first one. Jesus came on the scene. He died in 33 AD, rose again. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. And then the way started. These followers of Jesus who believed that he had risen from the dead. And this message went out from Jerusalem and Israel and reached this place, what we call Turkey today. They're the first generation of followers of Christ. They're, they didn't have any example of who had come before them. They're trying to kind of figure this out as they go. And so with that in mind, Paul writes them this letter. Chapter 4, this is what it looks like to be the church. And he tells them here, those first six verses of chapter 4, is that the beauty of being the church is that you're united together. You're connected to Jesus Christ. You're all brothers and sisters to God the Father. And look at, he just breaks out, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, over all and through all and in all. I love Paul. Because as he's writing like these key truths throughout his letters, he just all of a sudden just busts out worship. And here he is like telling this deep doctrine of you have one faith, one hope. Here we go. This is all. We're united. And then he just goes, and God's, it's through all and in all, God to be praised. And so he emphasizes these first six verses, our unity. Now in verse 7, knowing that we're unified in Christ, he now begins to explain our diversity. The idea that we have some differences about us, and it's not just skin color or hair color or economic or, or lifestyle. It's what's different about us is we have a variety of spiritual gifts. Look here at verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So every single follower of Jesus Christ has a gift, a spiritual gift. And this is the result of grace as Jesus, the wonderful gift giver, the graceful God who came in the flesh, distributes gifts to his people. And so I want to center our talk here today on spiritual gifts and, and what they're meant to do to build up the kingdom, to build up Jesus' church. So a few questions pop in my head as I'm looking at this scripture, verse 7. The spiritual gifts, I feel like, is maybe one of the most 
misunderstood kind of like topics among all of Christianity. When you look at verse 7, one of the questions that pops in my head is like, really, does, does everyone get a spiritual gift? Like, is that for sure, or as Melissa said, for reals? Does that really happen? You know, have you ever been around like toddlers who uh, have a sibling who it's their birthday? Like three, four, five-year-old, and their older sibling, younger sibling has a birthday. Have you ever been around like little kids when that happens, and they realize that they didn't get a gift? You know, like their, their sibling, it's their birthday, they get a gift, and they're kind of sitting there like, well, where's, where's, where's my gift? And um, I'm not going to name any names, Seth Doan, but um, at, at times, like, you see, like, toddlers, like, start to cry because they're like, wait, wait, I, I want a gift. Like, can I have a gift? And you try to explain to them. You're like, no, 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 it's, it's not your birthday, buddy. Like, your birthday's in a couple months, which how do you, like, quantify time to, like, a three-year-old? You know, it's like, like you know, this is their birthday. It's their time to open gifts. But I want a gift. And so at times, parents have given in, not naming any names, but... Um, have given in, and like they've given their toddlers gifts, just kind of a little tiny gift, not as big as the birthday gifts, but a little tiny gift just to like appease so that they're not so upset by that. And maybe there's like a little thought that you have, like, okay, maybe everyone gets a spiritual gift, but come on, like not everyone gets equally good gifts. Like maybe I'm like that toddler who just kind of gets, like Jesus goes, okay, well you just have a little gift, okay, I'm just going to appease you with that. But that's not how it works. Jesus, in his grace, the great gift giver. He distributes his gifts equally and wonderfully. Every single gift that Jesus gives the believers in Christ is valuable. There's no secondhand gifts. So every Christian receives a gift. Next big question that pops in my head, maybe it does in yours. Well, what are the spiritual gifts? Okay, if you had a little booklet when you walked in, pull out the sermon notes in there and flip, I call it the back page. On the top is kind of the heading of our sermon. Flip to the back page. I've listed where in Scripture we see a description of spiritual gifts. Maybe you've never seen a chart like this. Maybe it's familiar, but I think it's helpful for us together as a community to go over this. In Romans chapter 12, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, lists these gifts, the gift of exhortation, which also can be translated to mean encouragement. There's the spiritual gift of giving, spiritual gift of leadership, of mercy, of prophecy, of service, of teaching. That's what's listed in Romans chapter 12. Now go to a different chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you see this list. There's the gift of administration, of apostleship, of discernment, of faith, healings, helps, knowledge, miracles, prophecy mentioned again, as well as teaching, tons and the interpretation of tons, and wisdom. And then Ephesians 4, the passage that we're sitting in today. You have again apostleship mentioned, prophecy, teacher, and now a new one, shepherding or pastoring. And then I just forgot to include this, somehow it got deleted, but with your pen, will you write in evangelism? under Ephesians 4 as another gift that's listed in the scriptures. And then you have some miscellaneous passages that mention the gift of celibacy, the idea of no desire for sex for a season or maybe for a lifetime. 
Hospitality is a gift. But specifically, and I want you to hear this, specifically it mentions to the stranger or the aliens. It's not necessarily just even a Martha Stewart type thing, but it's to those who are displaced. And then martyrdom is a gift, which none of us would ask for, but thousands of followers of Jesus have shared in the sufferings of Christ through being martyred. And then voluntary poverty is also listed in the scriptures as a spiritual gift. Now, there's people way smarter than me that would say, you know what, some of these on this page, they're not spiritual gifts. And then there's people that are also way smarter than me that say, you know what, you didn't list enough of the spiritual gifts. You actually, you left some out. But what I want you to see on this paper is this is kind of just a working list that makes sense. About 24 different spiritual gifts that are listed here. So give or take a few. This is just a working list for you to look through. So the question is, who gets a spiritual gift? Well, all followers of Jesus Christ. What are the spiritual gifts? Well, here's a template for you. But then here's the question that I think a lot of us get stuck in. What are my spiritual gifts? I see the list. I I get the idea that all spiritual gifts are valuable and, and equal in God's sight. And I probably have a few. But what are they? Well, today, we're actually going to go and have everybody stand up, and I'm just going to identify your... No. (laughs) I wish we had time just to talk through that one-on-one over coffee. But because of the limitation that we're a large group, let me just help you with a few good questions to even consider what your spiritual gift could be if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This has been helpful for me in my life. One is affinity. What are you passionate about? As you look at a list like this, what brings you joy? What on this list are you drawn to? And then maybe even to help you deduce a little bit, what are you kind of taken back from? What are you, affin- what are, what are you joyful and passionate about? What's your affinity? Another good question to ask is ability. As you look at a list like this and consider your life with Jesus Christ... What spiritual gifts do you see fruit from in your life? As you consider your life, where have you seen fruit when you've exercised areas that would kind of go under one of these headings? And secondarily, where have you received affirmation from other believers in Christ? As you've exercised a particular gift, you've received affirmation that, wow, just the way that you taught that, it really made a lot of sense to me. You, you helped take a complicated subject and kind of boiled it down. I, I grew a lot from that. If you've heard something like that, that could be an affirmation of, of a particular gift. So you have affinity, you have ability, and there's also the idea of an opportunity. So as you look at this list of gifts and consider what you may have, what God's distributed to you, what have you had an opportunity to do? What have you jumped into when the door opened up as you consider your present ministry situation? What seems easy for you to get involved in? Some of these could help just determine what is your particular spiritual gift or gifts, affinity, ability, opportunity. But then here's a couple of do's and don'ts, and I hope this doesn't sound academic. I want to reach your heart. I think it's important to lay some groundwork here. 
Here's some do's and don'ts about spiritual gifts. I'll start with the don'ts. Don't be passive in your spiritual gift. And I'm just going to speak directly and honestly to us as a church. I love you. I'm with you. But I think many here at Calvary are sitting passively in their spiritual gifts. They're looking around and they're thinking like, wow, this is a big church. There's a lot of people involved in ministries. You know what? If they really need me, they they know how to get a hold of me. I, I turned in my information at the card. And I'll just wait until I'm specifically asked. And then I'll jump in. I want to challenge you not to be passive here at Calvary in the context of our church. Don't just wait for somebody to identify your spiritual gifts and then call you out to help. Maybe you need to take that first step. In fact, I would instruct you to take that first step. As you start to kind of think through what your gifts are, how can you be a good steward of that gift? We'll talk about how the church leadership, our purpose is to equip your spiritual gifts, to build them up, to help you in that. But... The church leadership does not have the responsibility to steward your spiritual gift. That is your responsibility between you and the Lord. So don't be passive. But then let me kind of balance the scales a little bit. Don't be self-centered in your spiritual gift. Don't walk into a life group week one number one and be like, I have the spiritual gift of teaching, so I'll be going ahead and just taking over the class today. All right, so step aside. I will be bringing the word. That's a self-centered view of using your spiritual gift. We had a guy about maybe two months ago, he showed up here at six in the morning, and he said, God's told me to come to this church and preach today a 30-hour sermon. Now, I commend him for listening to the Lord, for getting here at 6 a.m., but we're probably not going to just throw him up here and speak. Uh, hey, guys, just by the way, um, you may want to cancel work or school tomorrow. Uh, today's sermon is going to be just a little bit longer than normal. Uh, <laughs> bu- buckle your seatbelts. You're going to be here till tomorrow night. <laughs> so, like, it's just, this is not how I work. That wouldn't be a good stewardship of leadership. That's a self-centered approach to your spiritual gift. It's not considering a lot of factors. And so don't be passive, but then don't be so self-centered that you're just throwing your spiritual gift and demanding the attention that you think it deserves or requires. A couple more don'ts. Don't opt out. If you say to yourself, you know what, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to share with my neighbor about who Jesus is. You see, we have a general calling to fulfill the Great Commission. God says, I will give you the Holy Spirit to give you power when you share about me. That's a calling for all of us. We can't just go, oh, not my gift, opting out. No, no, no. Now there is some, and we'll talk about this in another couple minutes. There is some with the gift of evangelism who that needs to be a central part of their ministry. But all of us have the calling in our lives to share about Jesus. And so don't opt out just saying it's not my gift. And then don't project. The idea is if you have the gift of generosity. You feel like everyone should be generous. Oh, maybe that's not how your wife is wired, or your husband, or your kid, or, or your people in your life group. We all bring a gift mix into our relationship. So don't demand that someone else's giftings look exactly like yours. So those are some don'ts. Let me give you some do's. Do try out different gifts. 
This may sound a little bit funny, but why not just jump out and go, oh, do I have this gift? Is this something that God would affirm in me? Jump into different gifts. Test them out. You may be surprised. Do walk in humility with your gifts, knowing that it's not your natural talent that produces spiritual gifts. It's simply God's grace that gives you a gift. Point back to the gift giver, Jesus. And then do realize what a tremendous cost has been paid for your gift. Jesus Christ himself has paid a high cost to distribute a spiritual gift to you. Look at verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 4. It says, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul is brilliantly quoting Psalm 68 right here. In fact, in your Bibles, when you see all caps and kind of indented like this, this is an indication that it's a quote from the Old Testament. And so here's Paul quoting Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is all about God being the hero, being the victorious king. God climbs up to Mount Sinai, so to speak, in Psalm 68. In a very poetic way, David's writing this psalm of worship. And he says when, he, when God gets to the top of Mount Sinai, he's given gifts by men. But then Paul quotes from Psalm 68, and he changes it up. He paraphrases Psalm 68, and he says this, talking about Jesus, that he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and then Jesus, rather than receiving gifts, gave gifts. That's a little bit different from what Psalm 68 says. Paul, though, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is brilliantly making a point. And then read on, verse 9. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also has descended into the lower parts of the earth. Verse 10, he who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. It's a beautiful word picture right here. Paul is saying that Jesus came into this world. He descended into our world. Philippians chapter 2 beautifully describes this when it says this. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus gave up his majesty, entered into our world, lived among people. And then his life would take him to the cross where he'd be brutally beaten and publicly killed. Jesus descended, the scriptures say here in Ephesians 4, to do that. But then Jesus ascended, and we sang about this earlier here. Jesus conquered death, overcame sin, took away the consequences of the sin that you and I deserve. Jesus rose again. The stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so that we could see in because Jesus was not in there. He had victory over death, 
victory over sin. We worship a God of victory. And we want, we naturally desire to be people who are on the winning side, don't we? Remember in seventh grade, my friend Morgan Burdick loved the Chicago Bulls because they were setting the record, best record ever in the NBA until the Warriors break it this week. But they had the best record in the NBA and he got a Bulls jacket. I was like, we live in Northern California. Why are you getting a Chicago Bulls jacket? And he goes, man, they're the best team. I like them. I'm like, you can't be a Fairweather fan jumping on whoever has a victory. He's like, Michael Jordan, you can't argue with that. I'm like, no, I can't, <laughs> really. Um, we're desired to be people who are on the winning side. Followers of Jesus, you're on the winning side. Jesus has victory. And here's a reason you can tell that, proof of that, is that in biblical culture, a king would go off to battle. And the kingdom, the people that lived in his kingdom, would stay and they would wait to find out if the battle had been won. The king would go out to the enemy If he defeated the enemy, he would take the spoils, the treasures of that kingdom, and he would bring that to his kingdom. And so the king and his army would return back to their kingdom, and the people would know right away that the king had been victorious because they saw the spoils of war. And if the king was a good king, he would distribute the spoils of war to his people. And the people would respond with gratitude and thanksgiving, celebrating the victory that their kingdom had over another. When Jesus overcame sin and death, he gave us the spoils of war. He gave us the gift of salvation. We're free from sin. He gave us, the scripture said, the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you say, I believe in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and gives you the power to live the Christian life. And then Jesus, the great gift giver, giver, gave us spiritual gifts. So, your spiritual gift is a sign that Jesus has victory. Now do you see the importance of using your gift? Because it points back towards the victorious king. Jesus, though, doesn't just celebrate victory, but he has us on a mission. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says this, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against us, against it. Jesus provides us the spoils of war, a spiritual gift, and that gift is to be used to build his kingdom, to build the church, to build Calvary Church, Santa Ana, 1010 North Tustin, Santa Ana, California, 92705. You've been put here for a purpose, to use your spiritual gifts. Jesus gives a variety of gifts, all of equal value. One thing you see in the scriptures, and you see here in Ephesians 4, is that Jesus distributes the gift of leadership for the church. Look at verse 11. It says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. I want to break through just what these titles mean. Apostles and prophets. 
Apostle in the original language that Paul would use means send out one or send off. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus calls his 12 disciples to him and he has a mission for them. He says, you're my followers, you're my disciples, but now you're going to be my apostles. I am sending you out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God that I have arrived, that I am God in the flesh, the Messiah coming to save the sins of the people. And so Jesus puts on the disciples the term apostle. Then Judas betrays Jesus, ultimately kills himself, and in Acts chapter 1, we see the 11 remaining disciples gathered together, And they're there to gather together, among other things, to wait for the Holy Spirit, but also to name a 12th apostle. And the criteria for naming that apostle was that it was someone who was a witness of Jesus' resurrection. And there was two guys that came to mind. They end up in Acts chapter 1 selecting Matthias, who was an eyewitness to Jesus being resurrected. And so the 12 are now established Then later in the book of Acts, you see Saul, who would become Paul, having his Damascus Road experience, where he meets the risen Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, the beginning of the book, Paul identifies himself as an apostle set apart for God's purpose. And so in the scriptures, we have these 13 apostles. The definition of an apostle in the New Testament is someone who's witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. And so the question is, does that spiritual gift work today? Well, today, I would say yes and no. The no part is that none of us have witnessed the physical resurrection of Jesus. So according to the definition of Acts, we would say, no, this spiritual gift was just a first century gift. And yet, if you follow the definition here in Ephesians 4 of sent out one, You could say, well, yes, maybe it's a first century office, but I can see an apostolic ministry happening today. Steve Meeker is being sent out by Calvary Church, by us as a family of God, to Croatia. So in a sense, he has an apostolic ministry, spiritual gift of going out and proclaiming the good news. The same with prophets. Prophets in the Old Testament and the New Testament would proclaim repentance to the people. Repent of your sins. Turn to God. In other situations, prophets would foretell the future. Men like Jeremiah and Isaiah, John the Baptist. But you see the spiritual gift of prophecy really working in the Old Testament, the time of Jesus, and then in the first century. And so I would say that was a spiritual gift for that time. But you do have prophetic-type ministries today where people are called to call Christians and others to repentance. I don't know if you're familiar. Maybe you've seen him on YouTube. But Francis Chan is a guy, I would say, that has a prophetic ministry. He has this passion to proclaim God's holiness and to call people to follow and live up to God's holiness. Franklin Graham is going through all of the state capitals in this season and praying at the state capitals and calling America to place their hope and their trust in God. So those could be prophetic-type giftings 
that people are given today. But bracket apostles and prophets is a first century spiritual gift. And now you come to evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These are three leadership positions in the church that are very active today. Evangelists, original language means to share the good news. It's people who just love to share good news. Do you like to share good news? Yes. It's great when you have good news to share. Evangelists love to share the good news about Jesus Christ. Peter Wagner is a church researcher, and he once said about 10% of any given church has the gift, the spiritual gift of evangelism. And I've seen that here at Calvary Church. In our past, we've had men like Dan O'Brien. Dan was a guy who literally would share Christ anywhere he went. And God just favored him. People that I'd be scared to share with, Dan would just boldly go up to and share Christ with. I think of Fred Morris, who's still here at Calvary Church. Fred can walk into a hospital room and tell someone, you're going to die, you need Jesus. And they're like, okay. (laughs) And they respond. Is this incredible gift. Maybe he's even impacted some of us in this room. Janice Vanderslick was this sweet woman. She lived in Orange. She now lives in Hawaii in her retired years. But she had this great ability just to come alongside people, invest and love on them just in a few matter of minutes, and then share the good news of Jesus. These are people that have been in our church and have had this gift. I want to challenge those of you that have the gift of evangelism. We need you. We need your leadership here at Calvary Church. I want to activate you for ministry. Don't be passive waiting for someone to call you into ministry. Become what God's calling you to do. Steward the spiritual gift of evangelism. And then it also mentions pastors. This is actually the only time in the New Testament, believe it or not, that the word pastor is used. It also can be translated shepherd. It's people that have this deep desire to guide and to guard and to protect and to feed the sheep, the flock, the family of God. Now as pastors, we call ourselves pastors, those of us that call ourselves that are here on the staff of Calvary, that you graciously support This should be our calling to feed and protect and equip the sheep. But this office, this gifting, is not just limited to those who get paid or supported to do it. There are many of us in this room that have the spiritual gift of pastoring and shepherding. And we need to activate that gift here at Calvary as well. There's a couple thousand of us here. The staff that we have on the paid side of staff We can't simply shepherd every single person. We need the spiritual gift that you have of shepherding to help the body, to equip the body, to come alongside those that are hurting or struggling or confused or just need to be fed. And that goes into the final one, which is teachers. Teachers have the gift of communicating truth, God's word, but not just communicating truth, but communicating truth to transform that literally changes people. We need those that have the gift of teaching to not be passive, but to step forward and to teach in the context of life groups, of four-year-old little kids 
who need to hear the good news of Jesus. There's a wide variety of ways that you could use a gifting like this. But here's something that's key. Church leadership is not designed just to build a platform, just to gain a bunch of Instagram followers, to maintain a comfortable lifestyle. Church leadership, according to Ephesians 4, 13, is this. Verse 12 is this. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. The word equip here is a beautiful word. It means to restore. It means to fix a broken fishing net in the culture of the first century. It means to repair, repair a broken bone or a disjointed unit. Several years ago, I was playing basketball, probably one of the last times I ever played basketball, and I went up for a layup and I got fouled and my right shoulder dislocated, just popped out. And I had to go to St. Joe's ER. And I'm just sitting in the waiting room with my shoulder literally popped out, just dying. Like, ah, it hurts so bad. It hurts so bad. They finally saw me and this doctor, kind of like Mel Gibson in uh, Lethal Weapon, just literally sets it back. And I had instant relief. The job of church leaders is to equip the saints for ministry, to restore them, to help heal the broken places in people's lives so that they can employ their spiritual gifts. Because it's not just leaders who build up the church. You build up the church. These last verses, it's one just big sentence. Paul goes off here. He says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And then verse 16, he gives this picture of a physical body from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is better together in action. Verses 13 through 16. This is how God intended his bride, the church, those that call Calvary home, followers of Jesus, this is how he called us to live to proclaim his victory over sin and death by using the spiritual gifts that he distributed to us and building up one another so that we can love, we can love well. Obviously pointing back to the love of Jesus Christ. Let me give you an analogy here. Will Calvary Church be a bus or an orchestra? You see, when you get on a bus, you're pretty passive. You're dependent on the bus driver to know where he's going or where she is going. You look for your favorite seat in the bus. (laughs) Let me hit a little close to home. Um, If the bus driver asks you to move up seats, you don't want to. There's no application for that here at Calvary. (laughs) You get a little upset if the bus driver drives slow or if he goes too long. (laughs) 
or if the bus gets lost. But for the most part, you're just kind of on the bus, passive. It's all about the bus driver. He's the one in charge. He's the one driving. Calvary Church is not a bus. Calvary Church is an orchestra. This is a baton. (laughs) Jesus Christ, Ephesians 4 says, is the head of the church. He is our senior lead pastor. All of us serve under the conductor, Jesus Christ. The orchestra is not passive. Each of us in the orchestra have a role to play. We have the sheet music in front of us, God's word. We have a place in that music, a gift to use and employ. And the orchestra doesn't sound right if it's missing a certain section. We need each of us to be involved in being better together. And then here's this. The audience, it's not each other. The audience is a world who's frankly skeptical that we can do this. They're skeptical that what's different about the church. They're just about money and hypocrisy and checking in on a Sunday. If we here at Calvary Church truly were an orchestra, employing our spiritual gifts by the grace God has given us, the music that would be produced from this place would be so beautiful and so attractional to everyone here in Orange County and beyond. That's God's intention for this place. That's God's intention for the church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, your Holy Spirit is powerful enough to apply this passage to every single one of us and where we sit. I pray, God, that we wouldn't cowardly shove this to the back of our mind and move on after today. But God, that we would trust you and be obedient to what you're calling us to do with the spiritual gifts that you've given us. God, for some of us, we have no clue. God, give us wisdom. Give us eyes to see how you've gifted us. For others of us, Lord, we've been burned using our spiritual gifts uh, to the place of burnout. God, I pray that you'd restore us. Give us grace. Give us a renewed passion. Lord, we commit our gifts. We commit this family of God to you once again. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. At the stations, there'll be an opportunity. There are different places throughout the room to take communion. This is to remember that Jesus is the victorious king. You take the juice and the bread and you remember the high cost that Jesus paid, not only for your spiritual gifts, but your salvation. There's also a bucket at each of the tables where you can give. It's not just for those that have the gift of generosity. All of us are called to be cheerful givers, to give what truly belongs to the Lord. And then on both sides here of our front area, we invite you to come pray. If you want to just pray with another Christian, pray that God would give you discernment on what your spiritual gift is, or pray that God would give you the courage to use your gift. We'll be over here on the sides. We would love to pray with you. So let's respond with worship in just these variety of ways. Let's go for it.